Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we will be looking together at verses 21 through 43. Mark chapter 5, 21 through 43. And you can find that passage on page 985 in your pew Bibles. We are, of course, continuing this morning to make our way through the book of Mark. And as I've said many, many times now, that one of the great themes we find in this book is that Mark appears to be on a mission to get before us the biblical Jesus. And one of the things that we have witnessed again and again as Mark has sought to fulfill that very mission is that Jesus is revealed as Jesus is revealed more and more to us, we begin to see not only Him in a much clearer light, but many other things that are surrounding Him become quite a bit clearer as well in that revelation. And I'm certain you've noticed it. Mark is constantly using comparison in this narrative, so much so that it really would be difficult to miss. For example, as Jesus began to teach, not only was he teaching with a unique authority, but it was an authority that seemed to really have no rival once it was fully revealed. Jesus is the Word of God. And he is teaching as the Word of God. He is teaching the Word of God as its culmination. And so Mark makes the comparison of the teaching of Jesus on the one hand with that of the teachers of the day, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their authority was instantly manifested as being vastly different, even inferior to the authority with which Jesus himself taught. The people, we are told, marveled. They were amazed at the authority with which Jesus taught these crowds that were so often pressing in upon him. And so, as his authority is revealed as supreme, the authority of those teaching at the time is revealed as inferior. We see it as well with the power of King Jesus over the power of this world. In his wilderness temptation, Satan attempted through worldly cunning and temptation towards worldly power to bring down the work of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, much in the same way that he did with the first Adam. He used the trappings of worldly power to attempt to raise questions about God's motives in holding back on his people. However, Jesus, the word of God himself in flesh, spoke the bedrock truth of God's word in the face of the lies of the devil. Very soon, the power of this world looked extraordinarily inferior when held up next to the power of God revealed through the truth of his word. I think we saw it even in the use of parables. The method with which Jesus taught the message of the kingdom to these crowds of people, even as the kingdom of God is revealed more and more in all of its glory, all of its abundance, the kingdom of this world not only fades, but it so misses the glory that those who belong to it 
become more and more frustrated with every word that Jesus is saying, even while others rejoice and draw nearer and nearer to him. To one, the truth is communicated in clarity, while simultaneously another is driven even further away from the glory of the kingdom into the despair of this world. As the righteousness of Christ is revealed more and more to be a broken world, we begin to see more clearly the evil of evil itself. And as Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee into a Gentile land, he was immediately confronted with this man who was possessed by what is referred to as a legion of demons. We talked about that the last time we looked at this together. Righteousness, that is true righteousness, was now standing face to face with unrighteousness. And though worldly power had certainly evoked fear, into the hearts of many through the work of these demons, Mark shows very clearly that it would not stand for long in the presence of God incarnate, God in flesh. We get a vivid portrait here of the evil of evil. The people had done all they could to assuage their fears. They had tried isolating this individual from civil society, which, as I pointed out, is exactly what sin does, isn't it? It isolates us. Yet they were still terrorized as this demon-possessed man wandered among the caves and the tombs of the dead, crying out in agony night and day. They also tried restraining the man. And they found no earthly chains could prevail against his power and his strength under the sway of these demons. Mark tells us that the man broke every single man-made chain and shackle. And the terror of evil continued to occupy the hearts of any who encountered the menacing presence of this man. By all appearances, earthly power, the power of this world, the fallen power of evil in a broken world was indeed a very terrifying power until Jesus came. Jesus did not even have to open his mouth. And we witnessed the power of this world immediately bowing low to the earth before him. We are told even groveling at his feet. And it became clear in that comparison, like the other comparisons, that truly there was no comparison at all. Jesus Christ is supreme. He reigns over all. This is the Jesus that we find here in Mark's account of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And in his presence, the wind and the waves, the realm of Satan and his minions, the sicknesses, the diseases, indeed all things fall and flee when they encounter his holy presence. Beloved, it ought to encourage you this morning. Nothing stands against this Jesus. Nothing. Nothing is higher than Him. Fear of this world and its power fades away when compared to Him. This is He whom the wise rightly fear and the foolish ultimately most certainly will. 
He's truly over all things. This is the King of creation, the King of kings, and He has come with salvation in His hands. And as Mark has shown to us His superiority over earthly earthly wisdom, over sickness, brokenness, even creation itself, Satan and his demons, we find there is no opposition strong enough to withstand him. Mark places before us this morning yet another proof that indeed Jesus of Nazareth was no mere man. He was not simply a good teacher. He was not here to try and be a good moral example for his followers. He was certainly not another guru. He was not anything like a picture of weakness. He was God in flesh. He was and is the king of creation and all things are firmly under his feet. All things. So Mark places before us once again in this text that we will consider this morning King Jesus. We find him exercising ultimate authority over even death itself. And so it's with all that in mind that we turn now to the Word of God this morning. And I'd ask that you please follow along as I read from the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 5, again beginning with verse 21, reading through the end of the chapter, which ends with verse 43. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you and you say, Who touched my clothes? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. 
When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, and they entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for the opportunity we have to come before your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of so many things that distract us. We pray, Father, we would give our attention to your word and that hearing your word and seeing your word through eyes and ears of faith, that we would be transformed by that word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, if you have not noticed it yet, really is a master storyteller, isn't he? He's employing some of the tricks of the trade, if you will. He's sandwiching two stories here together in a way that builds the tension and the drama of the narrative. Please understand, I'm not pointing that out to get you to collectively celebrate the literary genius of Mark. Rather, I want for us to see the hand of God in directing his servant Mark, inspiring his servant to record this testimony of the glory and the majesty and the authority and the, and the power of Jesus Christ here in a way that has lasting impact. In a way that we will remember these things. That we will meditate on these things in a way where simply denying these things becomes very, very difficult when we see the truth laid out before us. Mark is an instrument in his Redeemer's hands as he masterfully puts together the pieces of this narrative. And it's memorable, isn't it? And as we make our way into this text, I want for you this morning to be mindful of just a few things that I think we see here before we begin to unpack it. The first, I think, that is clear here is the brokenness of this world because of sin. The second is the undoing of the curse that we see as Jesus Christ's ultimate purpose here in his earthly ministry. And finally, I want for us to see just something of the supernatural power of God-given faith that is on display for us here in Mark's accounting of these events. So brokenness, God's purpose in confronting that brokenness, and the power of God-given faith to seek and find restoration from that brokenness. First, let's consider for just a moment the brokenness that is on display for us here. And we see that it's not a small problem here, is it? Beloved, we live in a world where sin has wreaked havoc upon the entirety of the created order. It's not a new concept in Mark, is it? 
the violent weather which threatened the lives of the disciples upon the sea, it was the direct result of the fall. The sicknesses and the diseases and the awful injuries which created a sort of desperation in the lives of those reeling from sin and its effects, propelling them towards Jesus Christ where there was a chance of finding a relief, they were all the result of sin and the fall. Sin entered the world and with it came death. We see it even in the demonic activity that confronted Jesus Christ in the cities and in the countrysides and in the synagogues. We saw it earlier in this chapter as we were forced to look into the face of evil in this legion of demons. We see it again this morning, don't we? It's a broken world. Look at the picture here. A desperate father is facing the imminent death of this little girl. Let that sink in because it ought not be. A woman suffering the effects of a hemorrhage for 12 agonizing years. A woman, we are told, had spent all that she had seeking relief and had not found any. Broken. These things ought not be. They point to the brokenness of this world because of sin. And beloved, Mark wants for us to see it. We desperately need to see it. I want you to think about your own lives. Beloved, Mark is making concrete here what I know for a fact is some of our experience. Because I've been there with many of you. I've shared your grief as we've buried many of our loved ones. My friends, our families have suffered under the weight of disease and horrible accidents and many life-altering circumstances. Bodies have failed under the strain of weakness and infirmity. We have witnessed those who have destroyed their lives because of their stiff necks and heinous sin. Those who have run from the truth and suppressed it in unrighteousness. And I want you to understand, we are but a microcosm of a much larger, much more comprehensive picture. This world is broken. Scripture points it out continually. So too does your own experience in this fallen world, in these fallen bodies. Indeed, all of creation is struggling under the weight of the curse and its effects. And it's a bleak and desperate picture, isn't it? And it's one we must not neglect to reflect upon. In just a moment, we'll get to just how necessary it is to see the glorious hope that is ours in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But we need to see our sin and the brokenness that it brings. Beloved, I want to tell you this morning, we need to see it in ourselves. We in our sin have played a role in the brokenness. 
So, beloved, I want to ask you, do you think that way? When you see the brokenness of this world, do you think your own sin has played into it? One of the mistakes we often make in the church of Jesus Christ is that we never consider our own sin in this brokenness. We look at the world, we look at this culture, we look at the tragedies that are so evident, and we sort of point the finger away from ourselves. We think that we can somehow isolate ourselves if we just stay good and we work harder to get better in Adam. You know what I mean by that. Something that we considered as we looked at the demon-possessed man earlier in chapter 5, the people tried to isolate the problem, to keep it outside of civil society. If they do not have to look upon it, perhaps just maybe it'll go away. Yet it remained and it gained strength. Even in isolation, it became more terrifying. They tried to restrain it. And of course, it was another failure. What are they going to do? What are we going to do? We cannot build walls high enough to keep evil on the outside. Because the truth is, beloved, we are on the inside. Because sin and evil and wickedness is in our own hearts and our own minds. It's in our own weaknesses. It's in our own situations. And the truth that we need to come to grips with is we cannot simply run from it. We cannot outrun it. We cannot restrain it. We cannot hide it. We cannot ignore it. Because it's real. So what are we to do? Is it as hopeless as it sounds? The truth is, beloved, we see this brokenness as far as the curse is found. What is the solution to what truly ails us in this troubled life? If we cannot run, restrain, hide, or get away from sin, what are we to do about it? Well, beloved, I think that's precisely where Mark wants us here. What are we to do? We are to make haste to get to Jesus. You understand, God-given faith runs to Jesus. And we see that here, don't we? The world is broken because of sin, and the only comfort for us is to run by faith to the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. It leads me right into the second thing we see here. Why run to Jesus? To answer that, we need to have a firm understanding of exactly what it is that Jesus is doing here in these narratives. We need to ask that question. Why did he come? Why did Jesus Christ lay aside the glory that was his with the Father and condescend, that is, come down in flesh to us. Well, he came to undo the curse. He came to set the captives free. And we need to see it. Jesus is continually being confronted with the brokenness of this world here in Mark. And for very good reason. Because he is here to throw down the curse and its effects for eternity. 
He is here to be our only comfort in life and in death in this broken world. He is here as the second Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed to bring restoration, reconciliation, and redemption to the people of God. That is indeed his purpose for coming. And Mark is continually showing us that. You understand, Jesus is not in the synagogue teaching the people clever new strategies to somehow avoid sinning and to start keeping the law as the very means of their salvation. He's not doing that. He's not cloistering with the so-called righteous ones and strengthening their so-called defenses against all the evil that exists outside of their own hearts. No. Where do we find him? We find him here on the street, surrounded by the weak and lowly as they push in, trying to get close to him. We find him here, clean, standing amid the unclean. And he's bringing deliverance to the sick, the weak, the demon-possessed. And they're flocking to him. They're being drawn by him. And he's doing the tiresome, wearying work of combating the curse as far as the curse is found. And beloved, it is everywhere. He's continually being confronted by it as these massive crowds push in upon him and his disciples. And his perfect will is coming to fruition as he brings much needed relief to those struggling under the weight of sin and its effects. He came to save his people and prepare them for eternity with him in glory. That is exactly why he came. And though this may be a temporary relief for many, it certainly points to the rock-solid hope that his people have that he will indeed defeat sin, death, and the devil forever, for eternity. He will restore his people. He will purchase his bride, the church, through the laying down of his own life. Beloved, do you see here that this is precisely why he came? You know, I fear far too many believe that he came just to set the standard for righteous living. Or that he came to simply teach the truth to those who were confused. Or that he came to give you a better model to follow. No. It's not why he came. He came to purchase his church. He came to redeem us from the curse. And to give us the blessing of faith which unites us to his life, his death, his resurrection, and redeems us entirely. And we see it as he is unfazed by this opposition that is continually popping up in front of him. Do you notice nothing stands in his way? I think we need to see that. This life gets difficult. I know it gets difficult. It gets difficult for you. It gets difficult for me. It's a difficult life. But nothing stops his progress. 
as he presses forward with his mission to seek and save the lost, nothing will step up and throw him and his dominion down. He defeats Satan. He heals the disease. He casts the demons away. Even as the Pharisees begin to plot his death, they too are held at arm's length until he decides that the time has come for him to complete his work. Beloved, it should fill us with hope this morning. Nothing can stop him. His will will be done on earth even as it's in. It is in heaven. He will take the uncleanness of sin upon himself and cover his people with cleanness. Publicly declare that they are clean. We see that here, don't we? He will give faith to his people which will draw them to himself and he will prove to be faithful to the promise to redeem them completely, wholly. That faith is the final thing that I would point you towards in this beautiful text this morning, pointing out the full glory of the gospel. Mark has shown us here the brokenness of the world because of sin. He made clear to us the purpose of the coming of Christ to restore his people and throw down the curse and its effects. And finally, let's consider the power of faith that is on display here in these two examples. Mark shows us the faith of both people and between them. We can begin to see this wide variety and vast expanse of those who are called to Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. Those who come from all walks of life. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Look at them here. First, we have Jairus, whom we are told is a ruler of the synagogue. Now, he was not a priest. He was not a Levite. So many believe he was a deacon of sorts who would have been responsible for the maintaining of the temple and possibly even for the care and the protection of the scrolls, the written manuscripts of the word of God. But regardless of the nature of his exact role, we know that he was a man of considerable position. And he would have been known by all of those in this region. He's clearly a man of influence as Mark gives to us his name. His name is Jairus. And Jesus came for him. We need to see it. Look at the God-given faith that is driving this man. Consider what he does here. In the presence of this crowd, without regard for the consequences of his action, under the scrutiny, undoubtedly, of many unfriendly eyes, we are told in verse 22 that he came and that in the presence of all, he fell at the feet of Jesus. Faith drives this man, this sufferer, under the curse of sin to the feet of Jesus and it bows him low to the earth and he begins to beg Jesus for his mercy. That's what faith does, right? It drives us to Jesus. Nothing will stand in its way. And we need to see that. This man begins to plead with Jesus for mercy. He says, in effect, Lord, my my daughter, my little girl is on the very brink of death. Come, touch her, and she will live. He cares nothing about the possibility of losing his coveted position in the temple. 
He's at the end of himself. He's at the end of his considerable means. And so he comes knowing that this really is his only chance to ever hold his little girl and to laugh with her and dance with her and love her again. It's all in the hands of this God-man. Jesus of Nazareth. Look at the way Jesus lovingly, compassionately responds to this man should indeed encourage us. He gives no hesitation. He asks for no qualifiers. He needs no more justification than what stands before him. Faith driving one in desperation to the very object of faith. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus drops everything. And he goes with this man. And on the way to the house to answer the call of faith, we find this woman who we are told has a flow of blood for 12 years and we should immediately begin to see the contrast here again in Mark. Jairus is a man of means. He's a man of reputation. He's in no way, shape, or form an outcast. Jesus hears him and he goes with him in his unfathomable mercy. And then we find this woman also trying to get to Jesus. Faith driving her to Jesus. And she is the exact opposite, isn't she? She is an outcast. Beloved, have you ever spent any time thinking about this woman? Not only has she become impoverished by her pursuit of relief from the hands of the doctors and the charlatans claiming that they could make her whole, but her condition would have brought her far more than just discomfort. You need to understand she would have been, according to the Levitical, to the Levitical law, unclean. We've talked before about what that means. That men are isolation. Not only from society, but even more painful, from worship. She can't go in the synagogue. She would, have, she would not have been permitted. She was unclean. For 12 years, she was unclean. She is alone. She is isolated. She is afraid and guided by God-given faith. She pushes through this crowd that she's not even allowed to be in. crowd that would have been repulsed if they knew her state. She pushes through and she gets to Jesus because she must. And Mark tells us that after merely touching his clothing, driven by faith in her own desperation for relief, she is instantly healed. And she knows it. And so too does Jesus. He stands up and he looks around and he asks, who touched his clothes? And the disciples, in typical fashion, are a little bit beside themselves and they say, look at this crowd. Are you crazy? What do you mean, who touched your clothes? How could we ever narrow it down? But Jesus knows that power has left him. And he begins to look around this crowd, Mark tells us, for this woman. He knows who she is. He knows her situation. And this woman comes and falls at his feet and she confesses her action and tells him the truth. And Jesus, knowing full well her situation, knowing her impurity through the law, knowing her uncleanness, 
Jesus makes her clean. And then he graciously declares her clean in the presence of this crowd. Her faith has made her well. And Jesus has been touched by her infirmity, her uncleanness, and being perfectly clean, perfectly righteous. He has not made unclean himself, but his cleanliness, his cleanness becomes her own, and he declares her clean in front of all of them. She's no longer an outcast. She's been made whole. She has been cleansed. Beloved, do you see the beauty in this? We need to, right? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes our uncleanness and he gives us his cleanness. Her faith drives her to him in order to heal her of her disease. And Jesus as Jesus has so tenderly delayed his journey to help this poor, desperate woman, someone comes from Jairus' home and says, too late, your daughter is dead. It was too late. We're told Jesus in his compassion and his mercy, he looks intently at this man and before the man can utter a single word about all that had transpired, he speaks to the faith of this man and he says, do not be afraid. We see what happens. Jesus again shows that his authority knows no bounds. As he goes into the house, he throws out these mocking mourners. He takes this precious child by the hand. He issues a divine fiat, and this little girl rises from death. Death itself flees and obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. Her life returns and remains. You understand, Jesus is over death. He truly is over all. He truly is supreme. Beloved, do you see the power of faith here? It drives them to Jesus. It falls at his feet. It looks to him. It trusts him. It brings life through their clinging to him in hope. And what should we do in light of this wonderful truth? Well, faith should lead us to rejoice. We talked about it last week. to, To sing his praises. To worship. Sin has broken the world and everything in it. And Jesus comes to make clean and whole what is broken and unclean. To restore what has been lost. Beloved, is this the Jesus that you are here to worship this morning? Is this the faith that is driving you towards him continually? Because if it's not, beloved, you need to ask, what is driving you? Because nothing less than this will do. This is biblical faith and the biblical Jesus. This is King Jesus and he truly stands far above all things. Nothing can stand in his way. Nothing will stop faith from getting to him. And he mercifully equips us with this powerful faith, faith that drives us to him, faith that calms our fears, faith that perseveres, 
Faith that runs to life. Beloved, does it fill you with hope this morning to know that this is how faith works, not just in these two examples, but in your own heart? It opens our eyes to the brokenness all around us because of sin. It opens our eyes to the gracious purpose of Jesus Christ and coming down to restore what had been broken. And it gets to Jesus. And it finds healing. It finds wholeness. And it finds life. Beloved, is this the faith? that drives your worship even this morning. I trust that it is, and if it is, then join me as we sing the praises of this powerful, all-glorious, all-supreme King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.